Friends, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the prophet Micah in chapter 5. If you want to use the chair Bible, you can find this on page 778. <clears throat> 778. A. But before we read, let us ask our Lord to open our eyes. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, your word is light and life to us, and we pray that you would use it to rejoice our hearts. We pray that you would cause us to see the wonderful things you have for your people here in the scripture. And we pray that having seen, we would love you more, serve you faithfully and embrace our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, with greater earnestness. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Micah 5, hear now God's Word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Thus far, God's word, and may he bless his truth to us. On Christmas Eve... 1865, Philip Brooks, a pastor from Philadelphia, was on an R&R trip after the painful years of the bloody and disheartening four-year conflict of the war between the states. On this trip, Brooks visited Jerusalem, and he made his way that Christmas Eve night to a few miles south of Jerusalem to this quaint little village, Bethlehem. On that evening, Brooks came into the tiny town where a church stood in honor of Jesus' birth, and the town was dark and quiet, yet the church rang out with hymns rejoicing in the Savior's birth. Several years later, I believe it was three years later, recalling this beautiful moment, Brooks would write these words, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Wonderful words. And yet, these opening lines of the hymn reflect what Bethlehem looked like when Brooks saw it. That's not how it was in the days of Micah the prophet. This wasn't how it was in the days when Jesus was born. In Micah's day, in this prophecy of Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem is the collateral damage of Assyrian co- conquest and coming Babylonian destruction. 
And of course, in the days prior to Jesus' arrival, it was filled with to capacity due to a census that Caesar had ordered. Joseph and Mary, remember, were forced to go back to his own town, Bethlehem, to register. And the village was crowded so that there was no room for them there. However, Brooks' next line, I think, does capture the intent of Micah and ultimately the infancy narratives of the Gospels. But in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Now we know that Matthew and Luke take us to Bethlehem in the birth of our Lord. They explain to us that Jesus is the everlasting light, the Savior for all people who is God with us. But I want to take us back to some 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus to the predictions that this puny town would produce a ruler in Israel who would be the shepherd of God's people. And let me set the context for you. Micah writes in the 8th century BC, starting around the 730s down to the middle of Hezekiah's reign, which is about the year 700. And these were terrifying times. Assyrian military muscle was marching into the land. First, uh, Tiglath-Pileser III, that's one you should write down to name your child, right? Tiglath-Pileser III, he had invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and then into the southern kingdom of Judah. And despite efforts of a coalition to stop him, Pol, as he was known for short, punched Israel in the mouth, captured Samaria, and eventually the northern kingdom of Israel totally collapses in 722 B.C. Judah's boot-licking king, Ahaz, saddled up to Assyria, prostituting himself and the land to Assyrian idolatry, and he rejected the Lord. But ultimately, that proved to be of no relief. For when Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, comes to the throne, it's just a short season before Assyria, now under Sennacherib, starts squashing Judite towns. Now, we've been hearing about that in our evening series in Chronicles Most recently, the marvelous deliverance that the Lord worked where nearly 200,000 Assyrian soldiers, leaders, were crushed, killed, and Sennacherib is sent packing. That was a staggering display of the sovereign power of God to save. But that deliverance will only prove to be temporary. Because prophets like Micah and Isaiah, who were prophesying about the same time, indicated the next threat, Babylon, would succeed in seizing Jerusalem, and sending the people into exile. And why is that? Well, because the reprieve of God's mercy was not met with repentance by God's people. The kindness of God was not received in their hearts. They went right back to their idolatrous ways. So Michael will declare, and you can peek at it in chapter 4, verse 10, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, From now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Now that harrowing message does yet carry hope. Because Micah immediately adds, verse 10 of chapter 4, There, that is in Babylon, you shall be rescued. In other words, the covenant promises of God will not fail. A day of redemption will come to God's people. But for now, that redemption seems far away as various nations come and attack Jerusalem for her sin. But Micah sets the promise of God before the people. 
so that they may rest their souls in the Lord. And as we consider this promise, I want you to note three things with me in the larger passage. First, see with me a rod and a ruler. You might be thinking that's already two things, Pastor David. It's really a way to say six things, but only telling you it's three. A rod and a ruler. That's what we're seeing first in verses 1 and 2. And we begin with the language of a siege in verse 1. The troops are called to assemble because a mighty force attacks Jerusalem. We're told with a rod they strike the judge of Israel, that's the king, on the cheek. Now this is something that Sennacherib could never do to Hezekiah because of God's intervention. But Babylon will bring the rod. Ironically, in Psalm 2, the rod is the very symbol of the Davidic power under God. But it will be snatched from Judah's king, and he's beaten with it. In other words, the king has no power to defend himself. He's totally helpless. He's totally humiliated. With the result that the Davidic monarchy will fall. Though David's line has been seated on the throne in Jerusalem for 400 years, that reign will stop. God is judging David's house. Because while there were moments of godly pursuits among some of the kings in the line of David, by and large, these men rejected the Lord. So the Lord brought the rod against them. In fact, that was part of the prophecy of the Davidic covenant. We remember the good stuff, how there's going to be a forever king from David's line. But the Lord also said, when your sons commit iniquity, the Lord will discipline them with the rod of men. God will raise up adversaries to bring covenant curses upon the sinful house. And if anything should serve as a reminder to us that a bloodline is no guarantee of salvation, it should be this. These people in the very line of David, men who will be named in the genealogy of Jesus, are facing judgment because of their sin. The Lord told His people long ago through Samuel when they first asked for a king, this, if you, that is with your king, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, you and your king. Even if you get what you want, even if you have a king from David's line, that will not shield you from the rod if you rebel. And brethren, this principle remains true because our God hasn't changed. If we disregard the commandments of God, if pleasing the Lord has no place in our hearts, the faithfulness of God in fiery judgments will find us. The principle of the law, your sin will find you out. That hasn't changed as we enter into the New Covenant. And as we read as New Covenant people of these great calamities of the past, we're supposed to read and really pay attention so that this doesn't happen to us. We must not think ourselves above the rod if we reject walking with God. That's a sobering message to start. But then Micah quickly indicates the blow of the rod doesn't bring an end to God's promises. The sin of God's people will not stop the purpose of the Lord. And while there's clearly nothing redeemable in this people, God will act to fulfill His Word in the face of flagrant ungodliness, we get a but God moment. Verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little 
to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, the fact that Bethlehem will be the birth site for this coming ruler highlights two things. One, we go back to David's hometown. One commentator calls Bethlehem Davidsburg. It's the only thing it was known for. It was the pledge God made to David that his seed or coming child would sit on the throne forever. And God hasn't forgotten that promise. But a second thing, the mention of Bethlehem here is in contrast to Jerusalem. David's house has been located in Jerusalem for a long time. But Jerusalem is going to meet judgment. Jerusalem is going to lose the throne. Jerusalem, while it will be a prominent city in the future, will be crushed under foreign power. But while the Davidic dynasty in Jerusalem is going to be cut off with all majesty lost, God is able, as it were, to start over, to go back to Bethlehem with a new David. He's able to go back to the stump of Jesse, to quote the language of Isaiah 11, to this tiny little town of Bethlehem. But that even suggests the depths of humiliation here. This ruler to come will arise out of obscurity from a position of lowliness. If royal birth happened in Jerusalem, people might pay attention. There might be trumpets sounding, some type of thing published. Oh, look at the king, he's coming to us. But no one cares what happens in a one-horse town like Bethlehem, even if it's David's birthplace. However, what we're seeing here is truly a common biblical pattern. The Lord chooses the weak, the lowly, the common, the unnoticed, to be the instrument through whom He works. Think of this biblical principle. I'll just give you a few. He chooses an old geezer and a woman with a dead womb to grow His people, Abram and Sarah. He chooses an octogenarian with a stutter to be the guy to speak to Pharaoh and lead his people out of Egypt, Moses. He chooses the youngest of Jesse's house to be the great king, David. And he'll choose an apparently insignificant, poor teenager in the backwoods of Gentile-laden Nazareth to be the one to bear his coming ruler. And before she bears him, he'll take her to little puny town Bethlehem. We couldn't make this stuff up. God's ways are not our ways. And that should delight our souls on numerous levels. For not only is God a God who will abundantly pardon when we wouldn't do it, and not only is our God a God who will keep His Word to a collection of wretches when we would write them off, God is pleased to look at us, the lowly, the weak, the insignificant, and save us. Do you remember how Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians 1 to the prideful Corinthians? He tells them, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. I'm sure the Corinthians loved hearing that they were foolish. That's what he's telling them. You may not like the idea that we were all foolish, but it's true. 
And yet that folly was no obstacle to God's saving purpose. It magnifies His glory. And so it is here. The Lord chooses a place without even a dot on the map to raise up a ruler. But this ruler, while he comes from you, from humble origins in Bethlehem, shall come forth for me. In fact, the Hebrew text here is emphatic. From you, for me, shall come forth this ruler. In other words, the king that God is raising up will not be like the troublesome guys in David's house who were ruling for themselves, who were living for themselves. When Samuel is explaining in 1 Samuel 12, sorry, 1 Samuel 8, what a king is going to be like, he uses one word about six times. He will take, 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 take. Doesn't that sound like what a king will do? He will take away from you. But this king will be different. He will rule for God. He will rule by God's standards. He will be the king we need. He will be a king who lives by God's law, who's ready to do God's will, who will evidence God's compassion, God's love, God's faithfulness. And that's the king that our God will provide. While we are bankrupt to bring a selfless, God-devoted king, the Lord will provide. And God's man will be exalted as ruler over Israel. Not in Israel, but over Israel. That means the current travesty in Micah's day of a divided house, a northern kingdom, and a southern kingdom. It will end. They'll be reunited. God will bring His people to receive this king and submit to him. And why will they submit to this king? Well, it will be a work of grace in their hearts, of course, but it also relates to who this king is. Notice Micah's next phrase in verse 2, that the ruler's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. What does that mean? Well, Micah could be saying nothing more than what God is doing in raising up a ruler in David's house isn't a new thing. God had promised 300 years before this moment that David would have a son who would reign forever. But the promise of a ruler from the tribe of Judah, a lion from the tribe of Judah, goes all the way back to Genesis 49. That's a thousand years before Micah's prophecy. The Lord will keep His ancient promises. And that's a great truth. Not one word of all the good words that God has spoken will fail. Yet, Micah may be saying something more. The Hebrew word translated by the phrase from ancient days is used elsewhere to describe what is eternal. In Genesis 9, it's used of the everlasting covenant that God makes with Noah. In Genesis 17, it's used of the everlasting covenant God makes with Abraham. And then in Genesis 21, it's used of the God who is everlasting. Thus, Micah might be saying that the origins of this ruler don't simply stem to old promises, but that he himself is eternal. That would rise to the level of a John 1-1 statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's the eternal Word. And then the Word became flesh. This king will be like no other because he has Davidic origins, yes. He rules for God. He follows God's will. But he will be the eternal God among us. Now this is a glorious mystery, of course. God among us. God clothed in the flesh. But it's exactly what we need to be saved. The Son of God comes as man to save man. To represent us. 
And because He's God, He will prevail, satisfying the infinite justice due our sin, supplying a God-righteousness that we need. Brethren, praise God for His promise and the One in whom all of the promises find their yes and amen. A rod and a ruler. But then secondly, see, sovereign suffering and a saving shepherd in verses 3 and 4. Having spoken of this ruler to come, we get a reminder in verse 3 that the time is not yet. Therefore, Micah says, He, that's the Lord, will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now, the woman in labor comment is clearly a reference to Isaiah's prophecy just a few years ago during King Ahaz's reign that behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, that promise was given in spite of Ahaz's unbelief. Ahaz wouldn't look to the Lord for help. But again, God's purposes won't fail because of a wicked king. Yet, because of the wicked king and the wicked people, sovereign affliction will fall on God's people. Note here that it is the Lord who will give up this people to their enemies. Assyria and later Babylon appear to be the great foes of the day. But these nations are only the rods of the Lord's anger. God holds the hearts of kings in His hand. And He is directing these pagan kings to work their works of destruction to bring punishment on His people. It's a reminder to us that it's surely a fool's errand to think that you can oppose the covenant Lord. Why would anyone dare resist Him when the whole world is in His hands? Just ask Jonah. You try to run from this God, He'll throw a storm at you. You can't escape Him. Why will man in his pomp dare to think he can walk contrary to a sovereign God and prevail? Just read the Bible and ask the likes of Cain and Esau and Pharaoh and Goliath and Ahab and Ahaz. How did it turn out for those guys who stand against the Lord? Not very well. Every one of them has fallen because the Lord will hand His enemies over to judgment. And yet, while there's a hard word here if you oppose God, there's also a word of comfort. And it's this. God says in verse 3, He shall give them up until the time. I want you to note that word until. He shall give them up until the time. What is that saying but that the Lord not only rules the enemies who afflict His people, but He appoints the time when those enemies will stop afflicting His people. Ecclesiastes 3, there's an appointed time, a season, for every matter under heaven. The cosmic order down to the very daily affairs of our lives doesn't flow haphazardly. Things are unfolding according to God's purpose. He brings a time of breaking down and He decides when the breaking down will stop and it's time now to build up. The enemies of God's people are not in control. The Lord sits on the throne and He governs the affairs of men. He is working out His plan. And what will unfold will happen according to God's direction. He sets the time when the ruler shall come. Brethren, that is an incredibly comforting fact. For when we face afflictions, specifically if they're on the scale of Babylonian invasion and exile, 
we can begin to believe that there's no end to our trouble. Now, I know I'm not the only one who's ever felt that way. That whatever darkness I'm going through, it, it never seems to come to an end. We, we can feel in the midst of our painful and persistent trials that there will never be sunshine again in my dark world. And we can begin to believe the thought that all hope is lost. Or as the psalmist asks, has the Lord forgotten to be gracious? But the Lord is indicating right here that trouble is on a timer. It's not your timer. Trouble is on a timer. And God has set its beginning and He's set its end. He has appointed a day when the darkness will lift, when in the fullness of time there will be a child born, born of a woman, born under the law. That knowledge, beloved, should give us endurance. We can labor on with a joy set before us because we know our good God has promised that we can't be stopped by all these troubles. He appoints their termination and He will bring His good things. The Lord is governing not just the bright, sunshiny days in your world, but the dark, cold, miserable days. And He will bring the day when the everlasting light dawns. The echo here of Genesis 3.15 of a child born to this woman in labor. We've been waiting for the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head and the Lord will bring him into the world. Satan and all the trouble he causes will not get the last word. Redemption will prevail. And when this ruler comes, what will happen? Verse 3, this, there will be a return of the rest of his brothers. His meaning the ruler's brothers. Now, who are the ruler's brothers who return? What does Micah have in mind here? Well, he could narrowly mean a collection of those from the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> but if we look back in Micah's prophecy to the language of a remnant, chapter 4, verse 6, or even to the coming day of salvation, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, the returning people to the Lord are not just from the tribe of Judah. In fact, they're not just from the clans of Israel. Micah 4, 2, look at it. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. The picture here is of a multitude of every nation, tongue, tribe, and people streaming to God to be taught by God. These are clearly awakened with life and they're drawn to the Lord. It's very similar imagery to Isaiah 11.10. That in that day, the great day of salvation, when the Spirit of God has come upon the shoot from the stump of Jesse. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal, a banner, someone high and lifted up, think the cross. He's a banner for all peoples. And of him, the nations shall seek. The nations shall seek. And his resting place will be glorious. That language is fulfilled in John chapter 12. When after Jesus has been saying in the Gospel, it's not my hour, it's not my hour, it's not my hour, and some Greeks come to Philip and say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And suddenly he says, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I, when I am lifted up like a banner, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people, not every single person, but all types of people, Jews and Greeks, to myself. 
Jesus will be the reason the remnant, not only of Jews, but of Gentiles, returns to the Lord. And notice what Michael calls these people who come. He calls them his, the ruler's, brothers. It should remind you of the words of Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus, who's sharing our nature, goes to death to pay for our sins. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus is our elder brother, and He's not ashamed of you. Some of you are going to go to family gatherings this weekend. There's somebody you're ashamed of. Jesus is not ashamed to call us His family. He proclaims the Father's name to His brothers. Psalm 22.22 The flock He's come to shepherd isn't just of one little group, the people of Israel. He has other sheep who are not of that fold. And verse 4, He will stand and shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. Here the picture is of a ruler standing and shepherding with resolution, unflinching in his job. He's not vacillating like so many of the leaders of God's people who would pay off enemies, sell off things in their house, strip the temple bare. No, this king, this ruler, will not cave under pressure. He's clothed with divine strength. He aims for the glory of the Lord, and he won't back down from his work. It's not hard to think that these words are in Jesus' mind when He prays in view of the cross. That coming moment when the Good Shepherd will lay down His life for His people. John 12, verse 27. Jesus says this, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. What we see in our Savior, beloved, is even in view of the coming cross, which is a cursed death, a a darkness we can't even begin to fathom, that still Jesus is resolute to face it. As one famous Scottish Presbyterian pastor said, the thing that's staggering about the cross, and particularly at Gethsemane, is Jesus knows that damnation is coming. And He takes damnation lovingly. He loves His brethren. And He will go to that curse to stand in the strength and power of God that He may rescue us. Our shepherd will not flake out. He will never fail us. And how much more is that true today as He's ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high and there what does He do for us? He ever lives to intercede for us. He strengthens us. He guides us. He protects us. Micah is saying we have a ruler who will never fail. He will bring us out of the afflictions of this cursed world. He will quiet our troubled hearts. Do you rejoice in such a King who will never fail you? Ever. Your parents' children will fail you. Spouses, you are failing one another. You're going to fail your children. But your Savior will never, ever fail you. And to what does that lead in our text? We'll finally see, and much more briefly, security and peace. Middle of verse 4, and they, the people, the, sh- the ruler shepherds, they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. In Micah's prophecy, security was far from the people. They're, they're under siege, verse 1. Their whole world is rocked. Everything they know is coming down around them. The temple's going to burn, the walls will be broken, the leaders will be killed. 
Future leaders will be dragged off into exile. They have no security. But the work of the good shepherd will make them secure. Now, Micah doesn't give you all the details here, but that has to mean the good shepherd deals with the real problem. And the real problem is not a foreign power. The real problem is sin. All of this judgment happens because of sin. But this shepherd will come to deal with sin. He will face our curse. He will pay for our crimes. He will satisfy the justice of God. And He will break the power of sin that dominates us. We, those who believe in Christ, will be transformed. will be taken from the realm of Satan's rule and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And once in His house, united to Christ, we are secure. Nothing will tear us away. That's the security given by this ruler. He's going to defeat all of our enemies. He will assure us of everlasting life when He Himself prevails over death. Now Micah, again, isn't getting into all the specifics. But he indicates that this ruler will be great. Look at what he says. He will be great to the ends of the earth. That language suggests not a localized power in one region, just a great ruler in Jerusalem, but a power who dominates all other forces. None will be greater than He is. And that means our security won't last just a few years until another ruler comes along. No, our ruler will have a greatness that's unparalleled. He will have the power of an indestructible life whereby every knee will bow to Him. So we will be in perpetual safety. For those who believe in Jesus, this is a security into which we've already entered. We are already in the grip of the Redeemer's hand with none able to tear us away. But the security that we will have when all of this comes into its fullness will be beyond our comprehension because every enemy will be vanquished so that our peace is forever. And in closing, Micah says, all disasters against God's people will vanish in verse 5, and He shall be their peace. This ruler, the Christ, will institute a reign of peace as the Prince of Peace. And the increase of His government and peace will have no end. But I want you to take heart of the personal note. Micah is not simply saying that this ruler will accomplish peace, though he will through the blood of his cross. He will personally be our peace. That's a little different. We don't simply have a king who works for us. We have a relationship with the king. We are brought near to know him, to be indwelt by him, to be conformed to him, to forever be with him. And his presence settles us. What a glorious hope Micah here provides. This great ruler of humble yet eternal origins ushers us into a state of perfect well-being with all alienation, all calamity, all the storms and stresses of life in a fallen world overcome. Wouldn't you love it if all the storms and stresses of your life were overcome? Well, you have a taste of it now. But you shall have it in full when Christ returns. And you shall enjoy peace with God forever and ever and ever. What a great God to give a promise of such a great Savior to us miserable sinners. 
And here we are, beloved, looking back on this prophecy, and we see this has come to pass in Jesus. We have been brought into His everlasting and peaceful kingdom. And what should we say to this? Well, what did the angels say when they told the shepherds of the coming of this Savior? Remember their song? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The people of His good pleasure. He has brought peace to His people. And that's a peace we can never lose if we know this ruler by faith. May we be found trusting Him tonight. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, what an incredible word You give us here in Micah 5. So much detail spoken so long before the Christ came. Father, we're thankful that all of Your words have come to pass. We're thankful that You proved to be a God who is trustworthy, always faithful to Your Word, and always compassionate and loving. For Lord, You have given the Savior that we need. And we praise You for that, that our King is great to the ends of the earth, that King Jesus has been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, that He prevails as King and Head over the church and thereby provides for us a security that can never be broken. Lord, may we be comforted by that in the midst of our troubles tonight. May Your peace reign in our hearts. For we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.